Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, if you were with us last week, you know we're in a series of messages that we're calling A Traveler's Guide to the Bible, and uh, we've taken these two weeks, we, three weeks ago, I guess we, we started with kind of an overview, and then last week we looked at the Old Testament. Today, uh, we'll finish up, and we're taking a good look at the Bible and how we can read and understand it so that when we do, we can get the most out of it. And one of the pictures that we wanted to paint last week was that the Bible is not just this, this big book that we got to kind of force our way through from cover to cover. It's not just this one book, but that it's 66 books, and each one is, is waiting there for us to discover what's inside. Not just like a, a, a book that you have to cram your way through, but more like kind of a safety deposit box, that you have these 66 books, and each one of them is like a bank, that when you open it up inside, there's a treasure that's there that God has for you that he wants you to discover and to explore. And so we walked through this. We started it last week, and we worked our way through the Old Testament, right? We started in Genesis and worked our way through the, the prophets here, through Malachi. So we got through those 39 chapters, or 39 books, 929 chapters, and you did a good job. I'm going to take it easy on you today, and we're only going to do 200. 60 chapters. Can I get an amen? Right? Okay. Well, come on now. So, so where we're going to go today, we stopped with the Old Testament last week, which ended here with Malachi. And then historically, there's like a 400 year time span that kind of is right here between Malachi. And then when we get to the book of Matthew, when we start what's called the New Testament. And so today we're going to look at the New Testament. This has really been a, a, a fun series for me. I know it's a lot of information, but boy, you've done a great job as we've walked through this. Many of you have told me that you kind of took that 21-day Bible reading challenge that started two weeks ago, that if you want to read your way in the Bible every day, we gave some different models that you could use. And it's really cool to hear people say, hey, I took that challenge and I've been reading God's word on a daily basis or trying to on a daily basis. And as I have, God's word has come alive. Jesus has become more real to me. Things are different in my life and in my home and in my workplace. And it's been really cool to hear that because we do believe that God's word makes a difference in our lives. If you've not jumped in on that 21-day challenge, it's, it's not too late. We've got seven days left. We'll talk a little bit later about maybe what might be a good approach to take but today we're going to look at the New Testament. Do you, do you remember from history class when they told you that, that time's kind of divided into B.C. and A.D.? Do you remember that? Well, in a certain sense, that's Old Testament and New Testament. The Old Testament is everything that was B.C., and the New Testament starts with A.D. What's interesting, though, is these, these 39 books in the Old Testament that we looked at last week happened over more than 1,000 years of time. The New Testament books, these 27 that we'll look at today, all happen and were written within the first century. So this is all about the time, kind of that first century when Jesus came and the church was born. And we'll look at these, these 27 books today. The authors were all kinds of different people. You, you had a doctor, you had a tax collector, you had fishermen, you had someone who had been a persecutor of the church. In fact, when you look at the authors, two of them were actually brothers of Jesus. And out of these 27 books, these 260 chapters, we get what we call the New Testament. So let's jump right in. The first four books of the New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we refer to those four books. Anybody know what we call them? We call them the 
The Gospels, very good, you're doing great, awesome. Give you, just write an A on your paper right now, you're doing good. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are what we call the Gospels. The Gospels are significant because they tell us the story of Jesus. The Gospels tell us the story of Jesus. And, and let's just, as, as we jump into this today, let me just be honest with you. We're covering a lot of information today. It's not maybe as, as much inspiration as sometimes what we talk about on a Sunday, but it's information, and I hope you'll track with me, is really important for two reasons. One, there's gonna be a test before you can leave today. And then two, two, because it can be transformational for you if you'll understand how God's word works and changes your life. Now, we've got four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three are what we often refer to as the synoptic gospels. Anybody ever heard that term? The synoptic gospels, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The reason they're called that, that word synoptic means the same view. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in how they're structured they tell a lot of the same stories. In fact, scholars believe that they may have started with the same like collection of stories, and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke took it and added from their own experience, from their own interviews, from their own sources, but those books are so similar that when you look at them, you can't help but see that they have kind of a common um, structure and theme to them, and so we call them the synoptic gospels because they have the same view. Let me do this for just a few minutes then. Let me tell you about these four gospels because each one of them was written by somebody different and when they wrote it, they had a different audience in mind. They had different perspective because of who they were so it changes what we kind of see as a focus in the gospel. Now you find the same truth through all four gospels but each one kind of has a little bit of a different slant because they were emphasizing an aspect of Jesus' life to be able to communicate that to the audience that they were speaking to. So let's, let's start with Matthew. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is the Messiah. What Matthew really stresses is that Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew was a Jewish tax collector. That, that was his job. He knew his Jewish heritage. He knew his Jewish tradition. And so when he wrote his gospel, that was really important to him. Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he goes into, for the whole first kind of part of the book of Matthew, this genealogy where it's like this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat this guy. You know the part you fall asleep in. Do you know what I'm talking about? But it was hugely important to them because what it was doing, it was connecting the New Testament back to the Old Testament. Do you remember last week we said 300 times in these New Testament books, there's quotes from the Old Testament because the two are very closely connected. And Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience and he wanted to show them that the person they were waiting for to be their king, the person they were waiting for to rescue them, the person they were looking to be their Messiah, was the person of Jesus Christ. And so over and over again, Matthew quotes Old Testament prophecies. Every so often, you'll, you'll come across some old uh, black and white photos, like of family or of history in some way. My, my mom has a whole, whole bunch of them that they're collected from both sides of, of my family. And it's fascinating to look at them sometime and just kind of see the history. Every so often, you, you come across somebody and you go, wow, look at that resemblance. 
Like I have a niece who looks very much like my aunt. However, the two of them never met. Like there's this huge time span between them, right? And yet heredity and genetics are a fascinating thing. And the way it connects our present to our past, we read those genealogies and we think, ah, ancestry is just kind of interesting. It's what some people kind of have a hobby of searching online. Not for the Jewish people. For the Jewish people, those ancestral truths may have defined their land rights. They, they may have proven their place in society. And when you were talking the Messiah, if Matthew could show them a snapshot of how Jesus connected all the way back to these prophecies in the Old Testament, it was critically important. Remember what we said last week? That at the very beginning, in the first few chapters in Genesis, man lost relationship with God. And then throughout the rest of these books, it's a story of how God goes to great lengths to restore that relationship. Well, what Matthew says to the Jewish people is the person that God has sent is Jesus. So in Matthew, Jesus is portrayed as the Messiah. Mark gives us a little bit of a different angle when we come to the second gospel. Mark shows that Jesus is God's servant. Mark shows that Jesus is the one who came to do what God had called him to do. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago in the book of Acts, we were in Acts chapter 15, and Paul and Barnabas, who were kind of the stars of our show, got into a dispute. Remember that? And they had to, they had to part ways. There was a person that they kind of could not agree on, and that was what caused the sharp disagreement between them, and that person was Mark, who ended up writing this gospel. Because Mark, even though Paul didn't think he was good enough to go on the missionary journey, Mark ends up staying with Barnabas. He becomes a very close friend of the apostle Peter's. And many people believe that when Peter told the stories he knew about Jesus, Mark wrote them down. And that's where we got Mark's gospel. He's telling us Peter's stories. He wrote Peter's remembrances of the life of Jesus. And Mark takes a bit of a different angle because Matthew tells us that Jesus was the Messiah for the Jews. What Mark says to the Gentiles is that Jesus is the savior for those who are part of the Roman world. And so he writes a shorter gospel. He doesn't have as much teaching in it. It's more action. It fits those that he was writing to. And he wants us to see what Jesus came to do. Now, you'll see this in all the different gospels, but this is really important. And Mark shows us that Jesus came to be God's servant and to accomplish what he could as God's savior for the people. Matthew chapter 10, verse 45. Look at what we read here. For even the son of man... Remember that title because there's, there's times like you see in, in Mark 10, 45 that Jesus is called the son of man all through the gospels, but that's important. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus was willing to pay the price for our sins. And he didn't do it with a bag of coins and he didn't do it with a whole bunch of money. He paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross. And when he did, he gave us the opportunity to have our sins forgiven. He came to be our savior. And Mark, as much as any other gospel, points out who Jesus is and what he came to do. Next, we have the, the gospel of Luke. And Luke kind of focuses on the role of Jesus is the son of man, that Jesus 
is the Son of Man. Now you see this title in other places other than Luke. We just saw it in Mark. But much of Luke's emphasis is that Jesus was not just fully God, but he was also fully man. And then what he did, he did through the working of the Holy Spirit. Luke is interesting because his day job was he was a physician. So he was very detailed. He, he, had, a, he had a sharp mind. And in that way, he was also a great historian. And so Luke, even though he wasn't there during the time of Jesus, went and he interviewed people and he talked to people. And as a historian, he wrote this history. He wrote the book of Luke. He also wrote the book of Acts. And he wrote those books to be able to give us a history of who Jesus was and what he did. Now, one of the, one of the challenges that people sometimes have, especially when we talk about the Gospels, is they go, yeah, look, I, <clears throat> I get it that you have these different Gospels, but there's different places where they say things in a different way. There's different places where they tell different sides of a story. And sometimes it's hard to kind of reconcile those things. What do we do with that? How do we deal with some of the discrepancies that we may see at places in the gospel? Let me show you this, uh, let me show you this, this picture that I've got here. We're not gonna use these drawers and, and talk about the Bible next week, but I've come to really like them, actually, and uh, they're handy, so we might keep them up there. Um, no, we're getting rid of them. Okay, so this, this is a painting that hangs, we'll put it on the screens as well so you can see it. It hangs in the National Gallery in London. It was commissioned and painted by a guy named Anthony Van Dyke many centuries ago of Charles I. He painted this for a guy who was a sculptor named Giovanni Lorenzo Bernini, and he sent it to Bernini. And it's an interesting painting because it's all the same guy. This is all Charles I, but the, the picture that you have here is of him turning one way and then looking straight ahead and then turning the other. What's significant about this is that Van Dyke painted it this way for Bernini and then sent it to Bernini because Bernini was a sculptor and he was going to sculpt a bust of Charles I. And just one view would not work. He needed multiple angles to see exactly what Charles looked like so that he could capture a full picture of who he was. The gospels work in the same way. One gospel might not have been enough. And so God in his grace gave us the perspective of multiple individuals. And like in this case with the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke will all give us similar looks of the same person, but from slightly different angles so that we can understand more about who Jesus was and what he did. Does that help? Does that make sense a little bit? It's a powerful thing to see the gospels played out in that way and how God gave us these gifts to know who Jesus was. So four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we often call the synoptics. John is, is in a league all of his own. We'll talk more about John here in just a minute, but in that gospel, he takes this whole different approach. In John's gospel, we see that Jesus is the son of God. And John's gospel is different because John and Matthew both were eyewitnesses. But if you read through the gospels, you, you see that Jesus called 12 disciples. He had three close friends and probably his closest friend on earth was John. It's arguably true that John knew Jesus as a person better than anyone else ever did. 
And the perspective we get of who Jesus is in the Gospel of John is so unique in his teaching, in the miracles. If you've never read through one of the Gospels, maybe all the way through from start to finish, I I would encourage you, start with the Gospel of John. And as you open it up, say, God, will you help me to see Jesus as my teacher and my friend in the same way that John did? There's powerful truths that are there. We'll, We'll talk about John a little bit more in a moment but let's move on from there. So we've got the different genres that the, that the book is uh, arranged in that we're looking at. So we started with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the next kind of area of history or, or genre that we see here, and we'll just look at this one book, is the book of Acts. And Acts is a book of New Testament history. Acts is the book that we have of New Testament history. It tells us the story of the church. Now, we won't spend a lot of time in the book of Acts today because we're spending a lot of time in the book of Acts, right? We've been in the book of Acts kind of on Sunday studying for about the last 10 or 20 years. And it's it's a book that tells us about the church. Here's how the book of Acts starts. Acts chapter one, verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So did you see what he said here? He said, look, I I wrote you volume one, which was the gospel of Luke. And I told you all about Jesus. Now I'm writing you volume two, the book of Acts, because I want you to see how when Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church, it changed the world. And we've been watching this as we've been working our way through this book. Acts is the story of how the Holy Spirit worked through the early church to change the world. A couple years ago, a friend of mine pulled out this flashlight that he had, and I, I kind of admired it. And so next time I saw him, he, he gave me one. He says, you, you need one of these too. And it's just this tiny little flashlight that I look at it, and I go, what can this do? And then you look at it, and you turn it on, and then you can't see for days, right? I mean, this thing has got your retinas will heal. Okay, this thing, this thing is intense. I love this little light. I keep it in a drawer in my kitchen so that if I've got to go outside and say, I don't know, look for skunks, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? It'll, it'll do that. It'll help me because this tiny little light will illuminate my whole backyard. It's powerful what this little thing can do. Acts is this incredible story about how this small little band called the church moves out into the rest of the world and when they shine their light, The world changes everywhere they go. It's a powerful story of how when the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, when we allow the light of God to shine through the Spirit's power, the world is changed. And you know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful that at the end of the book of Acts, the story wasn't over, but that we're still writing the story of the church, right? I'm excited too. And we have the opportunity to shine our lights and see how God can work through us. Now look, let's pause for just a minute. And so we've covered Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And one of the questions that we ask sometimes is, how do we know when I read my Bible that I can rely on what I read there? How do I know that it's true? How do I know that the words are right? How do I know that this book is actually saying the things that God was trying to say thousands of years ago? So we talked about this last week, the, the, the Old Testament, most of the books of the Old Testament were primarily written in, anybody remember what language the Old Testament in? Hebrew, Hebrew. all right, thank, thank you for your confidence, sir. Yes, awesome. So we've got Hebrew in the Old Testament. The New Testament was primarily written in the language of? 
Greek, right? So you've got these different languages. Well, we don't naturally read Hebrew and Greek. We need that in English. And that was written thousands of years ago. How do we know that we're reading the right things? One of the things that's interesting is that we believe that God's word is infallible, that it's inspired, and that it's inerrant. That the words that we read there did not come from a human mind, but that they came directly from God. The challenge is, though, we don't have the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We don't have the original copy of Mark's gospel that he wrote down. So how do we know that what we're reading is true? Here's a little uh, quick lesson in what they call textual criticism. The original documents, let, let's say Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, the original one is what would have been called the autograph. The, the first one, the one he wrote was called the autograph. Well, we don't have any of those, of any of these books. We don't have that autograph. What we have are copies that were made so that others could read them, so that in, in the Old Testament synagogues and New Testament churches would have these documents. They're not called autographs, they're called manuscripts. And so we have to rely on manuscripts that were copied and preserved hundreds of years after the original autographs. So if you have these copies, how do we know that they're true? Well, one of the things that's interesting is archeology span has advanced we have more than 14,000 manuscripts, pieces and parts of scripture that we can go back to and use to piece together what we believe to be God's word. Now for the record, just so you know this, there is no other document in ancient literature that even comes close to having 14,000 pieces of it that you can go back to. I mean, we have far more information to base this on than any other piece of ancient literature. And when you put those things together, there are places where there's discrepancies. There are places where you look and go, okay, well, this manuscript says this, but this one says that. And when you piece it all together, do you know how much is united and does not have a discrepancy? 99.5% of what we have in our Bible is confirmed by the manuscripts that we have. That's something you can rely on, can't you? And that 0.5% that's left does not affect any major doctrines. It's things that have to do with spelling and grammar and some of those kinds of things, but do not affect major doctrines that we would look at. And so we can, with confidence, look at our scriptures and say, we're reading words that were intended to come to us from God himself, which then causes us to ask, I may be reading the right words, but how do I even know I'm reading the right books? Like in the last few years in particular, especially with the New Testament, there have been movies and books and people who have said that there are other books that should be in the Bible that aren't in the Bible. Have you ever heard this? And there's all these conspiracies about how all these councils hid these things and there were these secret things that happened and it makes for great movies and great books but not for great truth. Because if you actually go in and look at church history, if you actually go in and watch and see how the scriptures were pieced together into what's called the canon, if you ever hear that term, the canon of scripture, it means the standard that we judge it by, all those conspiracies and all those other extra books do not hold up to the test of time or accuracy or authority or truth. About 100 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, there was a, a heretic, actually, who put together his own list of what he said were the actual books of the word of God. And because it was this false list, it caused the church in that day to say, 
we need to put together an authoritative list. And so over a period of time, as they gathered the writings and the church grew and church fathers and those that, that, that knew the different authors weighed in, they eventually put together what we know today as our New Testament. But this is important for you to know. A book is not the word of God because it is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it is accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. This book isn't the word of God because I say it is. I say it's the word of God because it is the word of God. And we acknowledge that and we affirm that and that's why we can read our Bibles with confidence. So we're, we're walking through these chunks, right? So we've got the, the gospels, we've got history, and then these books that are in the purple are what we would call the Pauline epistles or the letters of Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote all 13 of these letters. He wrote more parts of the Bible than anybody else. We've been talking about the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. He's kind of the star of our show right now. He was a persecutor of the Christians as a very devout Jew. And then on the road to Damascus, if you remember this, Acts chapter 9, Jesus appears to him. His whole world changes, and he goes from being a persecutor to being a missionary, and this is what's, what's fascinating. We, we call these Paul's epistles. What does that word epistle mean? An epistle is a letter that was written by an apostle. And in most of these books, Paul's writing back to churches, and we'll see this in Acts. He's writing back to churches or people that he had won to Christ or churches that he had started or ministered in, and he's trying to help them through an issue or he's trying to teach them. You know, I've, I've been privileged on different occasions in my life to travel to some other countries and do some, some missionary work. And whenever you go, it's like you wanna bring something back with you, right? You wanna, you wanna remember a portion of it. It's like I got this little elephant when I was in Africa and got this print from Southeast Asia because there's these things that you wanna remember about the places where you've been because you leave a little bit of your, yourself there. Does that make sense? That almost looked like that camera shot. It almost looked like you could make that like elephant you know, walk kind of thing. So, Watch. Oh, yep, that's. Do, 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 do. So, sorry. It's the ADD kicking in right there. Here's the deal Paul's a missionary, right? And he's going from place to place, from church to church, and he's teaching these people. So he writes these letters as a missionary to connect himself back to the places where he's been. And it's a fascinating thing. Now, the book of Romans is interesting because he's writing to them, and in the book of Romans, to a place that he hopes to go, he gives to them probably the clearest presentation of the gospel that we see anywhere in scripture. If, if you could just have one book to get your theology straight, Romans is probably the place that you would go. Paul's logic and his theology are at its finest in the book of Romans. And one of the things that he does in the book of Romans is he helps us to see very clearly how we can come to faith in Christ, how we can, if you will, be saved. Have you ever heard the term the Romans road? Anybody ever heard that? And it's a collection of scriptures from the book of Romans that if you want to share your faith with someone, these are great verses where you can share how to become a believer straight out of scripture. Or maybe today you, you thought to yourself, you know, I'd like to have a personal relationship with God, or I know that things need to be right in my life, but I don't know what to do. Let me show you three of the, or excuse me, four of these scriptures that, that we would consider to be a part of this Romans road. Let's, let's start here. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Anybody here ever fell short of the glory of God? <laughs> right, we, we all have. At some point, we've all sinned. We've disappointed God. We've, 
We've separated ourselves from him. That's a bad deal for us. The Bible says we're sinners. But Romans chapter five, verse eight says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news, right? And so Romans chapter six, verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm so thankful that in spite of my sin, Jesus died for me because God loved me and I can know that gift of eternal life. To which you say, how can I know it? Romans chapter 10, verse nine. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So maybe you're in a place in your life where you say, I need God to make a difference in my life. I would encourage you, even based on those things that we just read, find a way to say, Jesus, I need you to be my savior, to forgive me. I need you to be my Lord. I give you control of my life. And watch that salvation that only Jesus can bring, bring that life change to you. That's the beauty of God's word and what we see there. So the book of Romans helps us to see that. Paul wrote these two letters called 1st and 2nd Corinthians to a church in a town called Corinth that, let's just be honest, it was messed up. Like they had all kinds of issues. Paul has to write to them and say, all right, let's, let's, let's do this the right way. It's kind of a manual for church health. Then there's books that we refer to as Paul's prison epistles. Paul's prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then this book over here called Philemon. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, or sometimes people call it Philemon. Where are my Philemon people? Raise your hand. Okay, where are my Philemon people? Raise your hand. Where am I? I just say it however I want to in the moment, people. That's your pastor, right? That's, that's me. And you might go, and I, and I get this because, because I, I remember history class and I also see the lunch in some of your eyes. You're gone right now. I, I know, I know that some of you are like, why do I care? Why do I care that Paul calls these prison epistles? Here's why. Because when you go to read these books, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and when you give time to think about where Paul was when he wrote them, that he's sitting in prison, it changes your perspective. In the book of Ephesians, when he begins to talk about that it's not by, by our own works that we're saved, but it's by God's grace through faith that we come to know salvation in Ephesians chapter two, it has a whole different perspective if you realize he's sitting in prison when he writes that. When you get to the book of Philippians, Not just theology, but in Philippians chapter four, when he says things like rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, he's sitting in prison when he writes that. When he says to think on whatever is good and that you bring all your requests to God in prayer, he's sitting in prison in Philippians four when he writes that. In Philippians chapter four, verse 13, when he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He's writing that from prison. Anybody ever had to quote that verse, I can do all things through him who gives me strength? Anybody have to quote it getting out of bed this morning just to come to church? Right, that's a powerful truth. Paul's writing that from prison. The book of Philemon Philemon (laughs) is, uh, Philemon, okay, there's another option, thanks. No more suggestions from the gallery, okay, let's just move along here, right? Maybe it's Philemon, and so, right? I don't know. This book is a, is a primer on forgiveness. 
Like it's powerful what Paul asks in this book. So don't just ignore these things. They have the power to change your life. He then writes the, the, the two letters to a church in Thessalonica and they have this really cool emphasis on the fact that Jesus is coming again and what happens in the end times. And then, then Paul writes these three books that aren't to churches but they're to people. Paul's pastoral epistles. He's writing to people who are pastors in churches that he started. Paul's pastoral epistles are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. They're letters that Paul wrote to people who he had allowed to be in leadership positions and he's encouraging them in how to live. So when Paul writes to Timothy and says, look, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a power, the spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. He's not just writing that to Timothy. He's giving those truths to you for you to hold on to. Look, the epistles of Paul teach us how our beliefs impact our behavior. The epistles of Paul, these, these 13 kind of purple books, help us to see how our beliefs impact our behavior. In most of his writings, he starts about the first half of the book talking theology and the second half talking about how we're supposed to live. And once you understand what you believe, then it helps you to know how to behave. Don't miss this in these books because it's so powerful to which you go, Chad, you keep telling me not to miss it. But when I read the Bible, I have a hard time understanding it. What do I do? Well, the truth is that's a lot of us. When we open scripture, sometimes we read stuff and we go, I don't, I don't get it. In part because it was written thousands of years ago, not to you. It was written to people in a different culture. God has allowed it to be for us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to people in a different culture in a different situation. So we have to think of it the way God was speaking to them. And then the other thing I just encourage you with is make sure you have a, a Bible version that you can easily read and understand. And that's a question sometimes that, that people ask me. They'll say, what kind of Bible version should I read? Look, when I was a kid, I grew up reading the King James Version. Anybody else? Most of my scripture memory that I've done in my life has been in the King James Version. Can I also tell you that when I read the King James, I say, huh, more than any other version? Because there's a lot of it there. I didn't live in the 1600s when it was written. So it helps me to read a Bible version that, um, that, that, that is more current. Sometimes I'll say to people, well, do you have a Bible that you can read? They're like, yeah, I got my grandma's family Bible that sits on the coffee table from you know, 1933. Let's get you another one, right? Because that's, that's a beautiful copy of God's word, but it might not be one you're gonna easily understand. Let me just give you this real quick. There's, there's different ways that people in their mindset, when they translate the Hebrew and the Greek, think of it to communicate to us. Some versions of the Bible are what would be a word-for-word -word translation or like a, a literal translation, like versions like the NAB, the New American Standard, or the ESV, the English Standard Version. Those are more like word-for-word. -word. So if you want accuracy, like you really wanna study the Bible in depth, I'd encourage you to use the ESV because it's very accurate. But the problem with that accuracy is that when you're just translating it accurately, it gets kind of clunky when you read it. It's not easy to read. Does that make sense? It's kind of word for word. It's, like, ah, it's just kind of not great for readability. So there's word for word. There's also what we would call some Bible versions are thought for thought translation or, or a dynamic equivalence is the term, like the NIV or the NLT. So the NIV is the New International Version is what we primarily use 
in preaching and in teaching. It's what our kids use when they're memorizing scripture. So the NIV is kind of the, the, the standard that, that's the most popular one. The NLT, the New Living Translation, it's kind of my favorite if I'm just reading for myself or if I'm encouraging someone who's new to scripture, that NLT kind of has it thought for thought. There's also some versions of the Bible that are, that are what's called a paraphrase, like the message or the amplified Bible. And what that basically means is that somebody took it and then put it in their own words. So that can be helpful, but it's usually just one person's opinion and it's not real accurate. So like if you read the message, it, it can be fun and helpful to read, but if you really wanna look at it for accuracy, I'd encourage you to go to like the ESV or the NIV. Does that help at all? Like it, and if not, just humor me. Does that help at all? Oh, I'm gonna be so happy at lunch, Rhonda. That's, that's good. Okay, so what do we got? We got the Gospels, we got History and Acts, we got Paul's epistles. Then we have these yellow books here, or what we call the general epistles. They're letters that were written by an apostle, but just not by Paul. So like we actually aren't sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's lots of theories. Hebrews doesn't tell us. But it's a powerful picture that shows us that Jesus is better than anything else. The book of James is a really cool book because it, it's got all this wisdom in it. It was actually written by James, who was Jesus' earthly brother. And if you ever think about how, how do I make my actions count? How do I deal with anger? How do I control my tongue? How do I manage my time? What do I believe about prayer? The book of James is awesome. And then we have these two letters written by the apostle Peter, first and second Peter. He writes them to a church that's going through a tough and a difficult time. Look, if you're going through a difficult time, I would encourage you, reading those, those letters that Peter wrote to the church that he loved are beautiful pictures of encouragement. We have the book of Jude down here that gives to us, what do you do in the church when you're dealing with false doctrine? These are all powerful books. Do you remember several years ago, there was a whole series of these, what was called the worst case scenario handbooks came out. Does anybody remember these little books? No? Well, let me tell you about them. There, there, were, these, um, and there were these books that you'd look at. Like, here's, here's, here's one chapter. How to survive a poisonous snake attack. How to deal with a charging bull. Anybody want me to go further with, with that one? Maybe before Thanksgiving. How to jump from a building into a dumpster. Like, all these really helpful things, right? <laughs> that are in this, and I'm just, that's just, that's just random how to treat a bullet or a knife wound. So you've got all these things in here. It's all these interesting things to read. You'll probably never need them, though. I hope you don't, right? Not these epistles, though. They're not just interesting. But what's fascinating about them is if you'll open up your heart when you read them, the general epistles give guidance for how to live like a Christian. They tell you how to live like a Christian. One last, one last book. It's the last book. And it's what we call the book of Revelation. And just like we looked at last week with the Old Testament prophecy, I'll, I'll pull out the binoculars again. Because Old Testament prophecy helped the Jews to look ahead to what God was gonna do. This book of New Testament prophecy, Revelation is our book of New Testament prophecy, helps us to see ahead to the future of the church and the future of the world. Revelation is this fascinating book. It's, it's what's called apocalyptic literature and it's filled with symbols and it's filled with imagery and a good chunk of it when we read it we go huh anybody else like pastor bill is teaching right now on wednesday nights 
through the book of Revelation, if you um, are unfamiliar with the book or if you're interested in studying more, I'd encourage you to be here on Wednesday night, seven o'clock, great class. This is a fascinating book and it's powerful in what it says, but there's so much of it that at times we probably struggle to understand. Revelation was written to a church that was going through very difficult times. So if you wanna know the key, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus. And the church said, look, the book of Revelation was written to remind the church in a time of trial that Jesus is coming again. It was written so they'd have hope. Let me give you a picture of the New Testament. In the Gospels, we find out about Jesus. In Acts, we see how the Holy Spirit was given to empower the church. And then Paul helps us to see how we should believe. And then throughout the epistles, it's not just what we believe, but then how we behave so that as we live in this world, Revelation reminds us that we can have hope. And we, we skipped a couple here. We skipped first, second, and third John. And I'll tell you why. It's because probably if you, if you forced me to say outside of Jesus, who's your favorite person in the New Testament? I think it'd be John for me. Like John's this fascinating guy. Like he told us about the past when he wrote the gospel. He told us about the present when he told us how to live in first, second, and third John. And he told us about the future in the book of Revelation. John had such a unique perspective. And here's the reason why. Because John was Jesus' closest earthly friend. If there was anybody who knew Jesus and his heart, if there was anybody that Jesus knew he could trust, it was John. And so when John writes, he writes with a perspective and a genuineness that, 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 that's so rich as we look through the scriptures. In fact, when he writes the, the end of his gospel, in John chapter 20, verse 30, he tells us why he's writing. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, I'm telling you this so that you'll believe and then your life will be changed. He knew it because he knew Jesus. I told you a couple weeks ago that earlier this month, Ron and I went away for our, our anniversary. It's kind of a cool little trip that, that we had planned and we went to Texas. We went to, to Austin and San Antonio and then we went to Waco, which might be significant to some of you. Anybody fans of the show Fixer Upper? Do you know? Yes. Yes, sister, I see that hand. And we'll pray for the healing because you shot it up so fast, right? If, if you're not familiar with the, with the TV show Fixer Upper, it's this couple, Chip and Joanna Gaines, and they go and they help people kind of remodel their homes. It's just kind of a, it's, it's a fun show. And then in Waco, they have this whole little, um, somebody told me it's Disneyland for adults, right? It, it's what they call Magnolia, and they've got their shop, and they've got the garden, and they've got the tr food trucks, and they got the bakery. We worshiped at the bakery a couple of times, right? They, they, I mean, it's just, and it, just be honest, I mean, I'll just put it on the table. I'm a fan. Like, the show's fun, and then when you hear the story of, of, of their life, you see how they give God glory and how God has supernaturally led them into the influence that they have. So I'm going a little fangirl here, but I'm a fan. 
right? On this thing. So we went, we did the whole tourist thing, right? We went and, you know, and they're, they're changing the community and we went there and they changed my wallet. And we had this really, you know, <laughs> it was great. And so one of the things that you do if you're doing the whole tourist thing is you go to this place called Harp Design Studio because there's a guy who shows up in a whole lot of the episodes who does all their woodwork named Clint Harp. Do you know the guy I'm talking about? Oh yeah, you're fans too. All right, I get it, I get it. So Clint's kind of this, you know, like cable TV guy, star, you know, kind of thing. So you go to, go to his little studio and you got a little shop where you can go in and buy wood stuff that Clint might've like touched or probably looked at or, or something, right? You know, it's like, that's the deal. And then they say this, they're like, look, if you go, if you go to the back, that's actually where they do the woodwork. So you, you can walk back behind the, the sh- little store and you can go back there and that's where the wood shop is. And you can go back there and there's a little garage where they make stuff and a big rack of wood and all this stuff. And then they got this chain that's there and you can go back to the chain, but if you cross the chain, you die. So that was kind of like the, that's the way it worked. So we're there, we kind of check stuff out. And I'm like, well, let's go, let's go back there. You know? So we go, we go walking back and we get right up to the chain and we're kind of looking around, it's kind of cool, because I don't, I don't know, like you see stuff on TV, and then when you see it in real life, you're like, oh, it's kind of cool, you know, this kind of thing, and so we're kind of looking around, and there's this garage that's over here, two garage doors, and they're up about halfway, and we're like, wonder if Clint's in there, <laughs> right? You know, you're thinking that. So Rhonda's like, sorry, Rhonda's getting as low as she can, trying to see, are those Clint's feet? You know, like you're, you're doing this, and we're just kind of, nothing's happening, we're just kind of standing around, just kind of waiting a minute, and all of a sudden, like, over oh, here's this pickup truck. This guy comes walking back from behind the pickup truck, and I look, and I go, who is that? It might be Clint. <laughs> and I look. It was Clint. <laughs> it really was. It honestly was. And he's, like, got this big case of water, and we're, like, we got that look on our face, like, I've seen you on TV. <laughs> right? You know? And he looks at me, and I think he's a fan of the Calvary Church program, and he was, like, I've seen you on TV, Chad. <laughs> No, he didn't. He didn't do that. You kidding me? He doesn't know who I am. Right? But nicest guy in the world. Puts the water down, comes over, shake hands with the, Where are you from? What brought you here? We're like, hi, Clint. Hi, Clint. Hi, Clint. You know, you're like a goofy, goofy thing you do, you know, kind of thing. And then, like, can we, uh, can we, can we take a selfie? You know, so we took a selfie. Isn't that, you know, there it is, right? And nicest guy in the world. You know, just went out of his way to talk to us, just super cool. So then Rhonda posts the picture, you know, and people making comments, asking, what's he like? You met Clint, you know, it's just kind of this really interesting kind of thing when you see this, because once you've seen or met somebody, it gives you a whole different perspective. And then when you communicate to somebody about it, it kind of changes the story, doesn't it? I didn't just go to Waco, I met Clint. <laughs> First John chapter one, verse one, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we write this to make our joy complete. History tells us that John lived a long life, that he spent much of the end of it in the city of Ephesus. Can you imagine how many times people in the church came up to the apostle John and said, what was he like? 
What was Jesus like? You, you met him. You literally walked right up to the chain and you looked him in the eye and you shook him in the hand. What was he like? And John says, I saw him and I touched him. And I'm telling you, he wasn't just any man. He was the son of God who came to give us life and who came to bring us light and came to change everything for us. And he says this, he says, I write this to make my joy complete because nothing makes me happier than when you find Jesus. So when you look at these books, the reason I'm passionate about you understanding your New Testament is because I don't want it to just collect dust on your shelf. And I don't want you to think that it's just another homework assignment or that it's just another collection of history. These books are alive. And just like John, I want you to read them because when you take your Bible and when you open it up in your lap and when you say, God, show yourself to me in this book, I'm telling you it comes alive. And that's where you find Jesus. And it's one thing for you to come in here on Sunday and hear some person tell you about God's word. It's a whole nother thing for you to experience it for yourself. So I'm challenging you. Open up this book. Maybe there was something we talked about to you today. You said, I want to know more about that. Open up this book and say, God, unfold your truth to me. Show me who you are. Jesus, help me to know you for myself because you're alive on these pages. God, thank you for your word. Thanks for the way it speaks to us. Thanks for the way it changes us. God, we pray that you would make your word alive to us. God, that we would see you for ourselves. That Jesus, we would know your love, Holy Spirit, your power, that you'd help us to know how to live so that we could have hope. Now, Lord, as we go from here, we ask that you'd go with us. Would you send us out with your special favor? and with your wonderful peace, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.